So, okay, first off, we need to have Bibles because we are going to be going through God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible with you, please raise your hand. We've got like a bunch of them back there. We've got people holding them right now waiting to see if someone needs one. So please, if you don't have one, raise your hand. They will bring you on. And then what I want you guys to do here while I get started here is find Revelation, the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, all the way to the end, go to chapter number one. We're actually mainly going to be in chapter number two, but we are going to quickly read through one to kind of set the stage before we jump into two. Where we're going to be camping is Revelation 2, 1 to 7, like that says, okay? Revelation 2, 1 to 7. And uh, why you are flipping there? Let me ask you the question that's right there on the screen. We've got the verse reference where we're going to be, and the question is, who or what is your first love? Who or what? Could be a person, could be a being, could be God, could be a thing. Who or what is your first love? Let me ask you more questions that's going to bring a little more clarity to that first question. What do you live for? What is your mind consumed by? Your thoughts consumed by? What is your heart consumed by? How do you spend your finances? That a lot of times says a lot about what you're consumed by. Who or what do you worship? Do you hold with highest regard? You put first before any other one or any other thing. Who or what is that? What is the master passion of your life? The one thing you cannot do without. Is that a who? Is that a what? Those are kind of all dovetail into the topic, who's your first love? And you know, love is an interesting topic. Here we are, this is the 12th. And I forgot uh, that I was thinking going into this week, and my, my, my wife reminded me, I was thinking that the 12th was Valentine's Day. And she goes, no, Tom, it's the 14th. So guys, Valentine's Day is in two days. Don't forget that. So you know, our culture is going to be all about love and, and uh, talking about love. And of course, the culture's view of love, which is very different from God's view of love. But uh, so, you know, as we think about love, so I'm going to embarrass my wife here for a second. So here's us. 26 years ago, on our wedding day, I weighed a little less than <laughs> all that good cooking. But anyway, so, you know, when we think of love, we think of significant relationships in our life. We think of our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our spouse, uh, our best friends if we're young, our moms and dads. You know, we think of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot to say about love. But you know that God is the one that created love and that God defines himself as love. I mean, all we got to do here is, Look at this verse right here, 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And he who lives in love lives in God and God in him. You know, if I think you were to ask God, hey, God, give me a definition of you. Describe you. I think you just did it right there. God is love. The best definition of who he is. So he originated love. He created love. He is love. He defines himself as love. And he asks us to live in God. And if you live in love, you live in God and God lives in you. And so we know, you know, here in our culture, you know, we've got all these different words for love. You know, we say, well, I love, you know, ice cream. I know my daughter loves ice cream. And I love ice cream too. And I love, you know, uh, I love a good steak. And I love watching the Olympic track and field competition because I always love track and field. And, and I love my wife. I love my, my kids. And, you know, it's, it's not that descriptive, but uh, biblically speaking, 
it used uh, four different words to describe love, biblically speaking, in the Greek. You've got storge, and that's like kind of love between family member, storge love. You have philea, that's love between friends, where, of course, you get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, philea. You've got eros, where we, where we get, you know, where we think of erotic love or romantic love, love between a couple, love between a husband and a wife. And then you have a special category, agape love. And you see what it says there below agape love? Unconditional love, the love of God. And let me suggest something to you. Let me suggest to you that it is impossible for us in our flesh, apart from the enabling of the Holy Spirit in our life, it is impossible for us in our flesh to live in agape love. It is so perfect. It is so selfless. It is so sacrificial. It is so unconditional. But you can't do that in the flesh. You have to have the enabling from God to do that. It's, it's how he operates at all times. It's how we operate sometimes if we can be empowered by him to live that way. Agape love. And here's a definition here. What is agape love? So it says uh, agape is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. The highest of the four types of love in the Bible. This Greek word and variations of it are found throughout the New Testament. Agape perfectly describes the kind of love Jesus Christ has for his Father and for his followers. Jesus lived out agape by sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, as well as the kind of love God the Father has for us. And of course, we have the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved, or agape, that's the word agape, he so agape, unconditionally loves us the world, creation, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God's the creator of love. God is the very definition of love. God operates in perfect, selfless, self-sacrificing, unconditional love at all times. And then he calls us to live in the same way. Agape love. He says in John 13, 34, as I have loved, agape, as I have loved you, he loves us unconditionally, you should also love one another. He calls us to live our life that way. And you you may have heard this before, you may not, but if you haven't, you need to hear this, that since he loves you unconditionally, there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to make him love you more than he already loves you. And conversely, there is nothing you can do, no wicked sin you could ever think of that would make him love you less. It's unconditional. Now, obviously, we don't always function that way, do we? <laughs> but that's the way he always functions. Okay? That's the way he always functions. Unconditional. You never have to think about, oh, I really messed up today. Is God loving me a little bit less? Whatever. No, it's at the max at all times, his love for you. Okay? At the max at all times, his love for you. Okay? So love, important topic especially with Valentine's Day in two days, and that's what we're totally focusing on today. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read together Revelation chapter 1. As I told you, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read that. We're going to have very little commentary on Revelation 1, because 2, 1 through 7 is what we're really going to focus on. But before we do, a couple quick things about Revelation. Who in here has ever studied the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. So just, just curious. About the same as first series, about half of you, maybe a little bit less than half of you. So a couple brief things. I mean, there's a ton that could be said. We just have to summarize real quick here. 
written by John the disciple, John the apostle of Jesus, about AD 95, 66 years after the church began at Pentecost. Okay, uh, John's background. He was one of the 12 original disciples. You guys know that Judas killed himself. Of the other 11, 10 of the 11 were all martyred for their faith. And for some reason, God chose to not allow John to be martyred. They tried to martyr him. They tried to boil him alive in oil. And church history says that he sat there and he sang praise songs to God. And they were a little humiliated because it's like, this guy ain't dying. And, and uh, so they took him out. They banished him to the island of Patmos, thinking they were going to stop God. And that's where God used, used that location to write the book of Revelation that we're about to read. You can never stop that. Right? You can never stop that. So uh, in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus in all his heavenly glory. You know, sometimes when we're teaching the kids about God, we say, Jesus is God. And then we'll teach them other times when the verses say, um, no man can look upon God and live. And then, of course, some of the inquisitive kids are like, wait a minute. You said Jesus is God, but you said nobody can look upon God and live. How is that, Pastor Tom? Well, because he's fully man and fully God. He came down here. He clothed himself in flesh. We can look upon him. But up in heaven now, he is in his totally glorified state. And we're about to see that in chapter number one. Okay? But you couldn't see here when he, was, when he was here, when he was clothed in flesh. Revelation, an interesting book. Only book that begins with a promise, which we're about to read. It pronounces a blessing on you. And, just reading it, and it ends with pronouncing a curse on you if you change anything in the book. He says, if you add anything to this book, or if you take anything out of this book, then he basically pronounces a curse. He basically says, all the bad stuff I said that's going to happen in here, it's going to be on your head. If you add anything to it, or take anything from it. So it starts with the pronouncement of a blessing, ends with the pronouncement of a curse if you, if you try to mess with the Word of God. So, interesting and in Revelation, God has something to say to his bride, the church, at all ages of history. So you know we're about to read about what he was going to say to the church of Ephesus here in a little bit. And uh, he wrote to seven specific churches in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. But what he says to them is for all ages. It is very, very applicable. Okay? And hopefully when we're done today, you're going to agree. It's like, yep, I'm hoping God spoke to you. Okay? Amen. So let's look at Revelation 1. Here we go. I'm just going to read it with very little commentary. It sets the stage for what we're going to see in 2. Revelation 1. The revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he. So here's the pronouncement of blessing. You guys are going to be blessed this morning. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Doing that right now. The Lord's going to bless us. And keep and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Did you see that? Who's the ruler over the kings of the earth? Jesus. So, listen, don't stress the politics. We're, we're stressing the politics in this country. Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Okay? Political parties will come and go. Leaders will come and go. Okay? But Jesus is the forever eternal ruler over the kings of the earth. Thank the Lord. 
and he's the one that's still in charge, and he's always going to be in charge. So you never have to get too worried because he is always going to be on the throne. Amen? Always going to be on the throne. To him who loved us and washed us from sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and, of pa- and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. Remember, he was banished there. He was on that island, Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, you know, he, he witnessed the Lord. They, they tried to martyr him. They banished him there. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now here we go, we are about to see Jesus in heaven. No longer just clothed in flesh, hiding his glory. Jesus in heaven, okay? I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Sound familiar? One like the Son of Man flowed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. In verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as dead. Okay, he is awesome. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You guys know that all throughout the Bible, when everybody was in the presence of God, that's the only thing they could think of doing because his perfection and his holiness and his power and his purity and his love was so overwhelming. All they could do was drop down. Okay. When they're standing there in front of perfection, just like one of the prophets said, he realized what a wicked sinner he was when he was standing in front of perfection and holiness and purity. So there is Jesus in heaven. Okay? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. By the way, that's one of the most powerful verses to show you that Jesus is, is God. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and Omega. He was alive and was dead, but is alive forevermore. Incredible. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Then he says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. By the way, verse 19, many Bible teachers say that is basically an outline of the whole book of Revelation right there. That is a miniature outline. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen presently, the things which are going on and he'll describe, and the things which will take place after this. Miniature outline for the whole book right there. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So he's going to describe describe now what, what that was he saw. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Okay, so a lot there. So now this, <clears throat> this is not going to do what he saw justice. This is a pain. This is going to be far from it, but I think it's still helpful, okay? It's still helpful. Nothing, you know, no, no, you know, you don't fall down on the ground when you see that, but if you were in his presence, you would. But you got the seven golden lampstands in his, in his hand. You've got seven stars above his hand. You got the radiance shining from his face. He's clothed in white. He's got the golden sash, feet of burnished brass. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. So that kind of encapsulates a lot of the things he said there. Okay? Powerful. Awesome. Guys, we gotta, we gotta remember who God really is. He is powerful. He is awesome. He is holy. You know, if you can keep focused on who he really is, then everything you face in life can become almost trivial. It's like, okay, the, the creator and sustainer and all-knowing and all-powerful being of the universe is on my side. He loves me unconditionally. He saved me. He's, he's planning. He's got great and precious promises for my future. You, you can get by anything. You just focus on who he is and what he's got planned for you and that never-ending hope he's got for you. And the fact that this life is actually the worst you're ever going to experience. This life, if you're a believer in Jesus, this life is the only taste of hell you're ever going to experience. This life, okay? You've got the presence of the Lord to look forward to. No more pain, suffering, death, dying. No more whatever, any negative thing you can think of. Just keep that focus. Keep that focus on who he is. He is powerful. And then when he says the angels, he says that there's seven, he says the angel of the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So what, what could that mean? Well, a couple, couple varying views here. Um, I think uh, J. Vernon McGee, I got a little quote from him up there. He says, uh, angels can be either human or divine. The word here is messenger. So to the messenger of the seven churches. It could refer to a member of the angelic host of heaven, because we know that the Bible talks a lot about God sending in his angels, God surrounding us with his angels. Uh, there's a verse that talks, that I tell the little kids, there's a verse there that says their angel, their angel stands before God's throne. I can't remember where that verse is right now. I'm real terrible with addresses, but I know there is one that says that. And so, so it could be, could be a, a heavenly angelic host, or he says it could, it could refer to a ruler or teacher of the congregation. And then he gives his little, his little personal quip here. Personally, I think that it refers to the local pastors. It's good to hear a pastor being called an angel. Sometimes we're called other things. <laughs> so I think that's his little, you know, slant on it there. So, so whether it's an angelic being, host that God has put over each part of his body, each part of his bride, or if he's referring directly to the, to the messenger, the pastor, the point is that, that uh, he's in control, you know. It's his church, it's his church, and uh, so let's let's jump now. now that we set that kind of stage for this scene up in heaven. Now we're going to hear his first message here to the first church here mentioned from uh, chapter two. So look at chapter two, verse one. Here he goes to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Right there, verse 1. 
he tells him to write this down because these things says he, these things says Jesus. You know that back then, he is very directly saying, I got a message for you. And guys, you need to know that hasn't stopped. He's got a message for us. Right now, he has a message for us. He wants to communicate with us all the time. He asks us to communicate with him all the time. He says, pray without ceasing. He wants us to constantly talk to him in our mind, in our heart, out loud, sing songs. He wants us to constantly talk to him, and he wants to communicate with us. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. He communicates with us in lots of ways, mainly in his word, mainly in his word. But you guys know that sometimes he talks right to your heart. He speaks through, through your conscience to you. Sometimes he speaks through other people to you. I hope at some point today he speaks through me to you. Okay? He says in Romans that he speaks through his creation. You can look at it as creation. And he speaks to you in his creation. So he speaks. It's not a question of, is God talking still? I mean, you've got a whole bunch of, of his communication in your hand right now. It's not a question, is he still talking? The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Because he is trying to talk to us. and He wants us to talk to him without ceasing. Okay? question is, are we listening? And then he says that he's the one that holds the seven messengers, and he's the one who walks among the candlesticks. So in other words, it's his church. You guys know that, it, that this church and every church is Jesus's church, okay? It's Jesus's church, and the way he wants it to operate is he wants to have the submission, the control of the messenger of that church in his hand. He wants them listening to him, he wants them obeying him. He wants them hearing from him, teaching what he's given them. And then he wants to walk among his churches. His presence, he wants to be in his churches. That's what he wants. Now we all know it's not always that way. And you may have been at a, at a church where you thought, wow, it's not that way at all. I don't sense you know, this person who's talking really speaking from God to me. And I don't sense the presence of God. Of course, of course, since God defines himself as love, one, one of the greatest ways you know that his presence is there is love. It's that unconditional agape love that you sense. You just sense his presence. So, you know, if, if you've been somewhere where you didn't sense that, then his presence might not have been there in that place. Okay? And you know, the interesting thing is this, this church he's talking to right now, Ephesus, it ceased to exist. So he was there when he wrote this. He was holding on to the messenger. His presence was there. But that church in Ephesus ceased to exist, which should tell us something. You know, I mean, He's going to be there as long as we want him there and as long as we keep him central, and as long as we lift up the name of Jesus and point everybody to Jesus, he's there. But heaven help us if we ever try to push him out of his own church. Because it's his church. His church. Okay, so he identifies who he is. He sets it up. Now, looking, now we're going to get into two verses 2 and 3. Okay, And 2 and 3, what you're going to see here, uh, you're going to see a lot of things. One thing you're going to see is you're going to see, since God is our example in all things, you're going to see how Jesus leads with encouragement. And this is a really interesting point I want to make on a little side point here, is you know, God is our example in all things. You guys dealing with whether it's employers, whether it's friends, especially parenting, parenting children, try to lead with encouragement. 
You know, I think I heard that I think John Wooden, the famous UCLA basketball coach, I think I heard a famous statement where he said, for every uh, one negative thing I tell my players, I try to tell them nine positive things about what they did right. So, you know, when you come, with, come to somebody with that and you're pointing out, here's the good things you're doing, here's what you're doing right, they're way more likely to hear you if you eventually say, but listen, here's something that needs to change a little bit. Here's something that needs to be done differently. Now, I, used to be, I used to be a coach. I used to coach, uh, I was the head coach of a girls track team when I used to be a high school teacher in Indiana. And I always tried, you know, I'd have some young girl run up and do the high jump and maybe she'd miss and she'd come over there and want to know what happened. And I always tried to hit her with two, three, four good things first. You know, you had good speed. You ran the curve well, you leaned away well, you developed a lot of momentum, you drove your knee high, whatever. Tried to hit them with the stuff they did right. And then I would try to, you know, and say, well, but here's the thing you need to do differently. And they received it, you know, they received it. Because they could tell it wasn't just there to beat them down. You know, oh, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. And you guys know what it's like when you do something, you try hard and you go to somebody. And if the only thing they tell you is the thing you didn't do right, it's just crushing, you know, it's just deflating. It's like, really? I think I did like 99 things right, but you pointed out the one thing I did. So it, it can be crushing. It can be deflating. So that's what we're going to see in Jesus right here. He's going to start by commending them for some things that he sees that actually are good things. So look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. There you go. He's rattling off the list, okay? And just like he sees that in them, saints of God know that he sees that in you. He sees what you're doing. He sees the good stuff you're doing. He doesn't just brush by it because he wants to nail you. He sees that stuff. And the interesting thing is, beyond just seeing it, he sees the heart behind it, which is really interesting. Okay? And as a matter of fact, that's one, that's one way he's very different from us. Is yes, he sees what we do, and he keeps note of it, and he keeps track of it, but he's more interested in the heart behind it than the action itself. And let me give you an example here. This is a saying that I love. I've heard Joe Foch say it many times, one of my favorite teachers, but I don't know if he invented it. But he says, the heart of the matter is always matter of the heart. And I love this verse. It's one of my top 10 favorite verses of all time. First Samuel 16, 7, God says, but the Lord said to Samuel, so this is when they were picking out a king for Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. And then here's the whopper right here. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? looks at the heart. See, he saw all the great things they did, and he's commending them on those. But you notice he also says, I see your patience, I see your perseverance. Those were, those were heart attributes. He's talking about physical actions they did, and he's talking about heart attributes by they were doing them. I saw patience, I saw perseverance. So he's looking, he, so he does see what we do, and he says he wants to reward us, but he's looking beyond just the action to the motive behind it. And you guys know, when it comes to serving or doing something, you know that there could all be a huge realm of, of reasons behind why somebody does something. You could have a whole bunch of bad reasons why somebody does something. You know, to be noticed, get notoriety, to be popular, to be cool, 
to, to, to win somebody over, to whatever, to manipulate somebody. There can be a whole bunch of bad reasons to do something, which the Lord would see. Or there can be the reasons that God really honors. You know, first and foremost, that you're doing it out of love for Him. First and foremost. And then doing it out of love for other people. And doing it to help people and to serve people and to sacrifice. And to be Jesus to somebody else. To be that ambassador He called you to be. So He sees what's behind it, not just what it is you're doing. Incredibly important to God. Something that we often miss. You know, in our culture, it's all about what we see on the outside. It's all the bling-bling and the money and the houses and the, the wealth and the prosperity and blah, blah, blah. He sees right beyond that. Okay? You guys know, you know, wealth and prosperity are nothing for God. He, he, you know, he spoke gold into existence. He's going to pave the streets of heaven of gold. That doesn't mean really anything there. It's just a thing. It's just a thing. Okay, we need to have that same mindset. It's just a thing, right? See beyond that, the heart. So he points these things out. He uh, encourages them. And now he's going to present to them something, though, that he sees that's a problem. Okay? And they're going to be more willing to receive this because he's led it in this way. So look at, a, look at verse 4. <clears throat> We're going to camp on this for quite a while here. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have, notice that word, left, that you have left your first love. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, before we really <clears throat> hit on us leaving the first love of God, and that God being our first love, <clears throat> I think we need to start with the fact that He first loved us. Okay? He first loved us. Okay, right there, 1 John 4.19. God first loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. Okay? He always initiates. And our entire relationship with God, you can kind of summarize it in that bottom little sentence there. It's not a Bible verse, but it's still a biblical principle that God always initiates and He calls us to simply respond. Okay? He always initiates and He just calls us to respond. He doesn't say love Him and then Him sit back and not love you. He always initiates in everything. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He calls us to live sacrificially. He calls us to give of ourselves. He calls us to die to ourselves. And He led, didn't He? He led. He died. He gave. He, uh, you know, he said while He was here on the earth, He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He didn't own a home. Of course, He owned everything. But he didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't buy a home. And he, he led. He gave everything up. He let Himself be tortured to death for us. He sacrificed. Okay? God always initiates. And then all He wants us to do is simply respond in love. Respond in love. That's all he wants. So, you know, if, if, if how we respond to God and whatever it might be, pick anything, pick anything. Pick, I don't know, pick coming to church. How we respond to that. If, if one morning we have kind of a bad attitude about, oh, I don't want to go, I don't want to get up, I don't want to sleep in, blah, 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 I don't want to watch that football game, whatever. Whatever it might be. Whatever excuse we, we throw out there, okay? See, he's looking at our heart. He's looking at our heart. He's looking at the reasons why we do what we do. Okay? And you know, if, if, you're, if, if you're just doing it on the outside, but on the inside, it's a war, and you, really, you aren't really doing it out of love, I think he would probably rather you just not do it. Really. 
because he's looking at the inside. Okay? He always initiates, and he just wants us to lovingly respond. So um, we, we really need to, to understand that the he always initiates love with us. And then we need to understand that God shows the greatest level of love for us. He initiates love. He is love. He shows the greatest level of love for us, that unconditional love. You can see John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that will lay down one's life for his friends. Or the Holman says, same verse says, no one has greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he has initiated, he has stepped out with the greatest level of love shown to us. And he just wants us to lovingly respond to that. Okay, and here's another one. How, how God has shown his agape love for us. So this is the same verse in three different versions. Check this out. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ESV says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. The Holman says, but God proves his love, his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? So how God has shown that agape love, that's it. That is the ultimate example. He has demonstrated his love. He has shown his love. He has proven his love for us. Right there, dying on a cross. Why we were still sinners. Why we were still sinners. Do you guys realize um, Jesus, when he's up there being tortured to death for our good, as he says, for the joy that was set before him, which was our good, our salvation, when he's up there being tortured to death, there's seven different things he said when he was up there, and every single thing he said was unconditionally loving. You got people in the crowd who were literally screaming profanity at him, mocking him, cursing him, screaming at him. They'd already spit on him, pulled out his beard, beaten him, put the crown of thorns on him. Now they're screaming profanities. He's up there dying from being tortured to death, and every single thing he said was unconditionally loving in response. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, he sees his mom standing there watching him being tortured to death. And, and he, says, he says to the disciple, I think it was John, if I'm remembering correctly, he says, he says, there's your mother. In other words, I'm about to die. I'm the oldest son. I'm supposed to take care of mom. I'm not going to be here to do it. John, take care of my mom. Everything he was doing, everything he was saying was all unconditional love. That is intense. There is no greater love than that. That is intense. So we really got to get it into our mind that that's his love for us. Intense, unconditional, never coming down, never going up. It's not like our emotions. It's perfect at all times. And he demonstrated it. He proved it. He showed it to us. I mean, you know, you guys that are parents, if <laughs> you would willingly die for your kids, you know, somebody said, all right, I'm going to kill your kid or I'm going to kill you. What's it going to be? You'd say, do it. Kill me. You would willingly do that. So God the Father, there was nothing more precious he could have done or shown to show how much he loved us. Nothing more precious. His one and only son, he allowed to be tortured to death for our good. Incredible love. Okay. If, you ever, if you ever doubt God's love, if you ever wonder about God's love, just keep looking back at the cross while we were yet sinners. We didn't deserve it. We weren't great people, and so he came down to help us out. Okay. All, we're wretches, all of us. 
Wyoming in that Senate. Incredible, intense love. Okay? So, that's His love for us. Now we just reminded ourselves of His love for us. Now He says, God says to them, you have left your first love. So, once again, like I said, God initiates, we respond. That's His love for us. So in response, okay, you've left your first love. So Skip Heitzig, Pastor Calvary Albuquerque, he kind of explains it this way about you have left your first love. He says, the words here imply a process that happens over time. Erosion has taken place. In the original Greek text, the term first is emphasized to mean something like you have left behind your love the first one. One translator rendered it, you no longer love me like you did at first. Uh, another way to define it here, and this is by Haley's Bible Handbook. This was their offense. Their zeal for Christ was cooling off. They no longer loved Him as they once did. They were becoming indifferent, half-hearted, not yet lukewarm like the Laodicean church, but headed in that direction. And this hurt Christ. It hurt His heart. Because He loves them so much. You know, the Bible says He's jealous for us. He loves us so much that when we walk away, He loves us so much that He's jealous for us. He wants us back. Okay? So, big one of the big questions of the morning, and only you can answer it, is, is your love for God, is your zeal for God cooling off? Are you no, you no longer love Him as you once did? Are you indifferent? your love for Him? Are you half-hearted? Are you headed towards lukewarmness or are you in lukewarmness? Is that the direction you're headed? You know, everybody in here is in one of three categories according to God. One of three categories. Either Jesus, either God, has never been your first love. He's never been what you lived for, what you put, devoted your whole life to, who you love supremely, who you hold in highest regard, who you worship. Either he's never been that in your life, or he has. But as he just said to this church, you've left that. You've drifted from that. You've put someone or something ahead of that. Or category three, which I hope everybody here is, but I'm sure it's not true. Category three is that he's your first love and he still is. And you're right there with him. And you're tight. And you're feeling good about your relationship. And you're like, praising the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, help me to not drift. Help me to not leave you. Help me to not leave you as my first love. Help me to keep you in first place. So all of us are in one of those three places. I can't tell you where you're at. Only you can tell where you're at. And you know, the sad thing is, is that we can lie to ourselves. Can't we? We can lie to ourselves and say, well, I'm here, I'm good, or whatever. But sometimes we're not even honest with ourselves. But God, as we saw earlier, he didn't see as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. The Lord, the Lord knows. He knows exactly where every one of us are. Exactly. Okay? So now, thank the Lord we don't just stop here. And oh, wait a minute. I got forgot one thing here. We're not going to take the time to read it because we won't, but this is a statement. Our love for God should far surpass our love for anyone or anything else. We're not going to take the time to read Luke 14, 15 to 35. But that's that really tough passage where God, where, where Jesus says something that at first you think, oh, that totally contradicts the other things he says. Because he says, he says, if anyone wants to follow me and doesn't first hate their spouse and hate their children, and, and he goes on and lists other things, he says, they, they are not worthy of me. 
Now, of course, we got to take Scripture and compare it to Scripture. Because he tells a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So obviously, he's not saying, saying husbands, hate your wives. But that's a comparative statement. He's saying, you know, if we could pull out, if, if we could somehow pull out the love out of you and just set it up here, like a pie chart or a, a diagram here, a bar chart, and say, okay, here's your love for God. Here's how high it goes. Here's your love for your spouse. Here's your love for your kids. There should be such a disparity between your love for God and your love for anyone or anything else that it would almost, somebody could look at that and go, wow, it's almost like they hate all those other people and things because their love for God is so much greater. And he flat out says that. He says there should be a huge difference. So once again, in your heart, other people, other things, your career, your spouse, your children. Yes, we're supposed to love our spouse. We're supposed to love our children. Yes, yes, yes. But if your love for anyone or anything is above God, you know, in children's ministries, we say this all the time to the kids. We say, what do you call that? When you put something above God in your life, when you make something else more important in your life, what do we call that? They say, an idol. Because we studied the book of Exodus. We learned all about idols. Anyone or anything is more important to you than God, has more of your heart than God, is your first love of your life besides God. He calls that an idol. He doesn't just wink at it and say, oh, that's okay. That's okay for your career to be more important than me. He didn't say that. Now, of course, you can do your careers under the Lord. Okay, Whatever you do, whatever he calls you to do, you don't just do it for you. You don't just do it for your boss. You do it as unto the Lord. And then you can make anything you do be an act of worship to him. You do it to the best of your ability as an act of worship to God, first and foremost. Okay? So, um, and yeah, we're going to jump past that real quick, but that's just where God says in 1 Corinthians that you could, you could give up your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Okay? All about the motive behind it, the love for it. So, thank, thank the Lord. He doesn't just stop there. He gives us some remedy here. So look at verse 5. Revelation 2, 5. Okay? So He loves us. He loves them. He wants to give us remedy if we have left our first love. Verse 5 says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember the lampstand was the church. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I am going to get rid of that church unless you remember, you repent, and you redo the first things. You guys know he would rather just get rid of a church than have a church there that really didn't represent him well, where there wasn't first and foremost love for him there. He doesn't want a loveless church. Okay, he wants us to supremely love him above all other people and things. And, and love each other with agape love. And if that doesn't exist, he, he says, I'm just, I'll just take it away. Okay? Some of you may have gone to churches where he may have taken away his presence from that lampstand and you didn't sense that love. You didn't sense that. There. That's a sad and scary thing. He's warning. This is, a, this is a conditional statement. He says, unless you repent. Okay, there's responsibility here on our side. So let's look at this real quick. He says, remember from where you have fallen. So you're here and you, at one point in your life, he was your first love. He was the all-consuming passion of your life. 
But now you can you can look at this, you could say, you know, I think he's kind of talking to me right now because I think I've kind of left. He's not really there anymore. It's tough. This is what he says to do. Remember from where you've fallen. Okay? Remember what it was like when he was there. How you felt, what you did. How you spent time with him. Okay? How you focused everything on him. How, how you did it is unto him. How you could actually take joy in anything. Even cleaning. Because you weren't just doing it just for you or, or for your spouse or for your family. You were doing it for him. Everything you were doing was for Him. And so you had a joy in everything. So first, remember where you've fallen, okay? Remember that. Then, repent, which means to change your mind or change your direction. Repent. Change your mind or change direction. We tell kids it's like you're going towards sin, walking in sin, living a life of sin, and you turn around. You turn your back on that. And you turn towards God, away from sin, towards God. And you, you seek the Lord with all your heart. And you come to Him and you ask Him to help you forsake this evil that you were doing, this sin. Okay? So you repent. What, what are the things that are stopping you from Jesus, from God being the first love of your life? What, what are the roadblocks in your way? Turn your back on those things. I don't know what it is, but it isn't going to be worth it. It is not worth it. Whatever it is, whatever joy you get out of it, whatever... Is, is doesn't even get close to comparing to the joy you can have with God. Okay? Whatever that idol is that's pulling you from God. So repent. And then you could say redo. He says, um, redo. Do the first works or the original things you did at the height of your relationship with God. So I don't know what that is for you. It could be something different for everybody. I know for some people, when they're really close to the Lord, they spend a lot of time just praising Him and singing I have some family members that are that way. They like to sing to the Lord. Some people like me, I just like to get away from everybody and everything, get totally alone, go for a walk in the woods, go for a walk where nobody sees me, and I can just talk to God, and I can just pour out my heart to God, and I know that I'm not doing this because someone is seeing me, and I'm not trying to impress anybody. It's just me and you, God. And that's probably the best way that I feel close to the Lord, is just talking to Him and just sensing His presence and just getting away. And, and you know, of course, in His Word, hearing Him speak to us, Spending time meditating on his word, chewing on it. Because I don't know about you guys, but I have a really bad habit of meditating on almost everything else in life and letting it absorb my mind. And I have to force myself to, to I love reading the word of God. I have to force myself to meditate on it. Don't just read it and walk away, but to sit there and chew on it and think about it and try to apply it and try to live it out and try to memorize it and try to remember it and try to bring it up in life. So redo those first things when you were tight, when you knew, yes, he is my first love. What was life like back then? What were you doing that's different from now? I can't answer that for you, but, but if you examine your heart, if you examine your mind, you can answer that for you. If you fall in this category, if you feel like you've left. Okay? And then 2 6. Let's see, getting short on time here. We'll wrap it up. 2 6. But this I have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now that sounds kind of like out of left field there, so why did he just kind of bring that up there? You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, um, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, what that is, is basically there, there's two categories of the Nicolaitans. Um, there was, or two ways that Bible commentators describe what this could mean. One is 
that uh, Nico means um, basically lord over and laity, the body. So when, one group of Bible commentators say that Nicolaitans were people who had lorded over the body of Christ. They would use their position, their place of power and leadership to control other people and get what they want. You ever see that on TV? It says he hates that. When people use their position and their power, their place in the church to control the rest of the body of Christ, to get what they want, to manipulate and get what they want. He hates that. And the other, the other uh, definition that a lot of Bible scholars say is that the Nicolaitans lived this life that basically just stomped all over grace. They basically said, you know what? God's going to forgive me. He promises he's going to forgive me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to come back tomorrow. I'm just going to say, forgive me, God. And he's going to forgive me. I'm, I'll go out and party and do whatever I want. He's just going to forgive me tomorrow. Which he also hates. He's stomping all over grace. Okay? Can you imagine saying that to your spouse? I'm going to go out tonight and do whatever I want with whoever I want. You're just going to forgive me tomorrow so I can just do it. Can you imagine that? This is saying it's God. Okay? So he says, you hate the deeds of, 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 notice he says, the deeds. He doesn't say you hate the people. God hates our sin, but he never hates us. He agape, unconditionally loves us. But yes, he hates our sin. And the main reason why he hates our sin is because he loves us so much. He knows that our sin messes up our life. Our sin messes up other people's lives. Our sin messes up our relationship with him because he still unconditionally loves us like crazy but it can cause relational issues. You know, it's like your kid. You know, I, we all hope that we unconditionally love our kids, not just love them when they're good, good, or they, whatever, do what you want, but unconditionally love them at all times. But if they're fighting against you constantly and rebelling against you, that does put a toll on your relationship a little bit. But it doesn't change your love. Your love doesn't go, oh, well, I love you half as much as yesterday because you're not obedient today. So, yeah. So he says, I got that on, on your side there. And um, you see right here, this is 2 Corinthians 1.24. Um, this is what God says, how, how leadership in the church is supposed to deal with other people in the church. Not that, not that we lord it over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. So leadership in the church is supposed to work with people in the church for their own good, for their own joy. Not to lord it over them, not to manipulate you, not to try to get you to give a bunch of money or whatever, or try to, you know, guilt you into doing something. Not to lord it over you. But actually to work with you for your own joy, for your own growth, for your, only, for your own betterment, okay? for your own improvement. Plant seeds of the Word of God in you. Okay? That's what he calls us to do. One more verse, and we're just about done. 2-7. 2-7. He wraps all up here. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So what the Spirit says to the churches, you know, the Spirit, God, God says, His Holy Spirit does three things. It convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Okay? He is Trying, he is trying to do that with every human being, convict, convict them of their sin so they know they need a Savior, of righteousness, of what is right and what is wrong, because there is a right and a wrong, and of judgment, that there is a coming judgment, and they need to get right with God. And that's what he's doing. And uh, he's saying here, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. So you might be wondering, okay, so who's an overcomer? What does he mean by that, to him who overcomes? Well, he tells us right here in 1 John 5, 3-5. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, being born again, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Your faith helps you overcome. And you guys know your faith, you didn't work for your faith. You didn't earn your faith. Okay, Faith is a gift of God. You owe owe God all the praise, honor, and glory for your faith. Okay, It's your faith that overcomes the world. And then the last uh, verse, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You overcome by your faith, your faith that says Jesus is the Son of God. Do you guys realize that the second largest religion in the world, one of the most important things that they say, that they say is most important to teach Islam, is to teach that God has no son. They push it and push it and push it. And they get really angry with you if you say God does. Satanic. Because God says, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Praise the Lord. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how you overcome. So it's your faith that you're saved by, putting your faith in the Son of God, Jesus. And if you, you know, I'll tell you, we're going to, um, let's see, Ooh, running short on time. I talked too long again. I apologize. We were going to sing a song. We're not going to have time to sing the song. We're just going to pray. But I'll tell you, before we pray, I don't know where you're at. I hope the Lord spoke to you through His Word. Wherever you're at, if you are the person who has never had Jesus as your first love, He's never been the all-consuming passion of your life, I pray, as God asks us to, to plead with you to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Come to Him. Okay? Or, if you have had that in your life, He has been the first love, but you have left that, you see signs of that in you, you know there's some truth to that, then do what He says. Remember where you fall, fell from. Repent. Turn from that. And redo those first things when you were tight with Him. When you were tight with Him. And then, of course, the third category. Any of you guys here that you like, you're like, I just thank the Lord that He is my first love. I don't feel like I've left Him. I feel like He still is. And praise the Lord for that. Pray that, you can, that He can keep you tight like that. And that you can help other people who have left. You can encourage them. You can be an example to them. You can tell them how great life is because you have God. So let's, let's pray about that, and then we'll be done. And after we're done praying, if there's anybody who needs to be prayed for, please, please come on up.